I love that it it uh, within its pages contains it kind of contains the meaning of life, right? Like in an absurd way, like it, it, the the whole story explains Earth and its purpose um, as the supercomputer that is designed to determine the meaning of life. And like an, as a metaphor for existence, that's kind of profound. Like there's so many layers to this, right? Like, I don't know. I, I love that. Like, you know, what if the meaning is to question the meaning? Like, what if that's the meaning, you know? The reason for living is living. Like this is, you know, to, yeah. to experience. And to question what the reason is. Like, right. to, or to try and find out, like to forever pursue that question. What if that's the reason? episode 176 of the ink to film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie i'm luke and i'm james and this week we discuss douglas adams's 1979 novel the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy james do you have your towel are you ready to uh take a ride through the galaxy yes yeah i do i uh i have my Well, don't panic i i don't panic yeah I've... um this story is it's interesting because I th- I think I've read it before. I-, yeah. I don't remember for sure, but I think in my younger days I read this story, but I didn't remember anything from it. I've definitely seen the movie, so and I'm familiar with like a lot of the things like "So Long and Thanks for All the Fish" and some yeah. of the other like cultural references from it. But it was a lot of fun to revisit. You know, it's funny. I have a very similar story with this. I uh, I have it marked as red on my Goodreads when I went and pulled it up, and I was like, "Did I read this book? I must have, right?" I think I read it when I was really young, like maybe my teenager years and reading it this time. I was like, God, I forgot like so much of this. Yeah. Uh, so it's just been a long time and, and apparently I have a shitty memory. So it's <laughs> it's mostly gone now. And uh, revisiting it now was like a completely different experience. You know, like I, I've learned so much about writing and and uh, doing the podcast now and everything. I, I came in with a very different perspective on it. Um. We, we talked about it a little bit before we started recording how um, this is going to be one of those tricky projects where I don't want to be insufferable and just like repeat a lot of the jokes from the book, which mm-hmm. I realized I kind of did at the at the start of the episode. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, that's going to be the trap. So, like, ultimately, like, if you're looking for people to, like, tell you, like, remind you of all your favorite jokes from the book that's probably not what we're gonna do um we'll touch on some of our favorites i'm sure but um instead we're gonna talk about like who douglas adams is as a person or or was um what the history of the book was um because i i did a lot of research into that it was really interesting um our reactions to it how we liked it as as just a you know as a novel um and then we'll we'll get into the actual plot and react to that in general um but yeah, I mean that's what I th- that's how I picture this episode to- is going to go. What do you think? Yeah, I mean that sounds good to me. I gotta say, like right off the bat, like I love this book. I knew that, like, sort of when we I, and I keep referencing this. I hope that these things aren't like I hope people don't take these things and and think that they're like exactly the same. But when we read Good Omens, mm-hmm. the sort of like British dry humor tone of that story reminded me of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I think I even said at that time, and. I love that. I love the tone of that. I love the, for my sensibilities, this is one of those stories that like, it's very funny. It's clearly like well-researched, but it's also not, re- it's well-researched, but it's just like taking big swings at like all this, all this sci-fi jargon and stuff that they're creating for this world building that they're doing for this universe. Yeah. Um, but it's also so clever. That's, and it's like, it's so clever. It's got so many funny moving parts in it. And like, I, it's one of those books that makes me laugh. Um, and I actually was having this conversation recently, like I've been trying to create a playlist f- that kind of like encapsulates all of the songs that describe me as a person. And I and ju- I was task. thinking about, <laughs> yeah, and I was trying to think of like a list of books. And I think this this sort of 
this tone of story would definitely speaks to me to the point that like a story like this or good omens would definitely be on that list of books that kind of describe my sensibilities if you didn't know me you're going to come up with a list of uh, books that that, if you didn't know me and i was going to create a list of books this this is probably going to be on there just because it really speaks to me. I think a lot of people would agree with that. You know, I, this this is an incredibly popular uh, book that, again, um, we are going to be covering Sleepy Hollow uh, coming up here pretty soon. And I was I had a, uh, a post on Twitter about how I always felt like that was a story I never really fully got. Like, I didn't know what its origins were. I, I And I'm curious to get into it and find out about it. Um I realize that that's kind of true with this. Like, it's kind of a cultural phenomenon, and and I see so many references to it. And even though I think I'd kind of read the novel before, I must not have like read it very deeply because I kind of forgot it. Like, I didn't know who Douglas Adams was. I didn't know the mm-hmm. legacy, um, that kind of stuff. And in doing research for it, I feel like I finally get it now. And I think so much of it is bound up in who who he was as a person. Um, so I'm excited to get into that, but before we do a little bit of housekeeping stuff, we just launched a bookshop page, which is through bookshop.org, which, um, if anybody knows about that, basically it's like it was set up to be an alternative to Amazon for book sales that would support local bookstores. And I think it was set up prior to the pandemic, but I, I saw a lot of people talking about during the pandemic to help try and keep book, bookstores afloat. Um, and I think they donate like a por- portion of all their proceeds to local bookstores and local book organizations. We were able to set up a online bookshop like storefront through their website and um, you can create book lists on there. We were able to do that and populate it with the books that we've covered on the podcast and the books of different guests who've been on the podcast. Um, and so if you were curious, if you wanted to like see all that in one spot, um, we'll have the link down in the show notes. Check it out. And if you are if you want to buy something on there, that'll directly help the podcast. So I just thought that was a cool new thing. Wanted to pass it on to our listeners. I love it. I think it's amazing that that you found that, and 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 any way we can support like local businesses, local local bookshops, and stuff like that, because there's so there's something so important to me when I walk into a bookstore and I can feel like old books and used books and things like that. I think that's I think that's awesome. So yeah, brick and mortar, and uh, especially in, in pandemic times, I feel like all of us have been uh, deprived of that. And yeah, that's one of those things. Once I'm fully vaccinated, that I'm excited to like get back into bookstores more frequently yeah, and, and browse definitely uh, uh powell's here in portland for example oh uh one other thing we just released a patreon video um one of our first times doing video content where we did a tier ranking list of all of our projects well all of the adaptations from our first and second seasons um and that was a lot of fun it was a weird like different sort of thing we'd never really done before and it was kind of experimental content and mm-hmm. we always felt like Patreon's a good place to kind of try that out. Um, so if you're curious about that, you can like you can actually make your own tier list if you wanted to. I put a link down in the description of the video. Um, but yeah, check that out on our Patreon if you're curious about that. It's rare video content from us, and yeah. like that is something that we've been thinking for a long time that we want to do more of. So let us know if you liked it. You know, staring at our faces the whole time and everything <laughs> like that, instead of just hearing us as as per usual. Yeah, uh, definitely let us know. And if it's something that people uh, seem to like, which early indications are people are enjoying it, uh, maybe we'll do more of it for like later seasons that we did. Um, But back to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Douglas Adams. Yeah, my general reaction to the book before we get into the biography, um, I had so much fun with it. Like this book, it just it puts a smile on your face. Um, I I alternated between reading my physical copy and listening to the audiobook, which is uh, narrated by Stephen Fry. Found out there's multiple versions of this, but this is the most recent one that was made uh, to coincide with the release of the film, because um, he voices one of the characters in the in that in the film, um, and it, it's an excellent audiobook. I think he does a fantastic job reading it, and yeah, it's like this is the kind of book that um, is so easy to read. It's so fun. It's so funny. And um, it's such a great piece of sci-fi. And uh, I don't know, like it's charming. It's dry. It's got that dry British wit, like you said. Um, And it just like I can see why so many people fall in love with this. Um, In many ways, it's sort of like makes fun of science fiction. Yeah, Um, definitely. It's very self-aware in that way. Um, 
in in a way it kind of reminds me of the way that like Shaun of the Dead is is sort of like a comedy send up of like a of a zombie horror film. I was like thinking that. about how <laughs> Edgar Wright adaptation of this would be amazing, but you know Absolutely. we're gonna we're gonna watch the movie next week. We'll see how. It- see how it goes but i would love to see an Edgar Wright version of this that comedy spin on it and and it's it's so lovingly done like like i said there's something about it that feels very well researched like it's someone who knows what they're talking about within it in order to spin it on its head and create all these interesting situations and i i was you know it was laugh out loud funny at sometimes i got really attached to the characters and it's just so clever and the, the way that it breaks convention in some ways of like jumping over to see the perspective of like mice on earth and and you know like all of these funny things that that he comes up with i i'm just like i'm in love with her yeah it's really funny it's got this narrator who's got this excellent dry like observational humor that he's making because he you know the, the narrator is basically god um it seems like and then there's like so many fun things said about god and um, oh yeah the way they tackle religion there's a section yeah. for that and i thought that was amazing yeah so we'll get into some of the reasons for that too um you know, all this stuff is super interesting, but yeah, and I don't know a ton about Douglas Adams, so I am really interested to hear like yeah. sort of why he wrote the story. And well, everything. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that this isn't this novel is itself an adaptation. Um, really? Yeah, he started writing it as a radio show, and then the radio show was wildly popular when it came out. And he then adapted the novel the following year. And then he would release further episodes of the radio show as he was writing further novels. Wow. So Um, is it similar? It's very similar to what we get. Like it's sort of the same tone and everything. It wasn't like a more serious Similar but different. Um, We'll get into into some of it. Um, You know, and so it's just fascinating that even this is an adaptation of something else. So so adaptations all the way down, I guess. it's funny to think about uh, how often that happens. Um, also, he's famous for like taking other projects of his own and cannibalizing them for uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, um, which which is you know we'll get into it. It's a six book trilogy, which is hilarious. Um, I did see that there were a lot. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, honestly, like I, I I want more, so I, yeah. I think I got to go check it out. Yeah, me too. Uh, I was just thinking about how much I. Uh, I should go read <laughs> more books in this series. Especially if they're as brief and, and like fun and yeah. page turning as this was. You know, I'd love to just like consume some of those. Yeah, for sure. And um, I'll put them on the bookshop, actually. Uh, I'll put all of them on the bookshop. So if you want to get them all in the same place, you'll be able to. Um, anyway, so let's talk a little bit about Douglas Adams. I actually have an immense amount about him. There's a like he's he's a beloved author who a lot was written about him. A lot is known about him. Um so I can't really touch on all of it. Um, so we'll kind of move through and you can just ask me questions and I'll, I'll let you know things I know about him. Then we'll get into the plot, but let's start there. Born Douglas Noel Adams. He was born in uh, 1952. Died on May 11th of 2001. Um, the age of 49, which we'll get wow. into. Um, he was an English author, screenwriter, essayist, humorist, satirist, and dramatist. He was the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which originated in 1978 as a BBC radio comedy before developing it into a, quote, trilogy of five books that sold more than 15 million copies in his lifetime and generated a television series, several stage plays, comics, a video game, and in 2005, a feature film. Um, He is in the UK Radio Academy's Hall of Fame. He also wrote Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, and co-wrote The Meaning of Lif and The Deeper Meaning of Lif. Lif or Life? I don't know. It's L-I-F-F. And The Last Chance to See. He wrote two stories for the television series Doctor Who and co-wrote City of Death, which and served as the which was, I think, an episode of Doctor Who, Mm -hmm. and served as the script editor for its 17th season in 1979. He co-wrote the Monty Python sketch, Patient Abuse, which appeared in the final episode of Monty Python's Python's Flying Circus. Uh, He was one of only two men to uh, be credited as a writer on Monty Python who weren't part of the core crew. All right. We got to stop there really quickly. Like, this is British royalty at that point. Like, you're on Python. You worked on Doctor Who. And he he wrote these stories. and, And this is all before the age of 49 obviously oh, yeah. that's incredible this was all when he was really young um wow you know he was like in his 20s when this was happening yeah. um so he was 
incredibly tall. He uh, was six feet tall by the age of 12 and would go on to be six, five. But uh, he apparently he was like teased a lot for his height. Um, And because of that, like he was a very um, quiet, reserved child who his like teachers are incredibly worried about. Um, And he really shined when he started getting into creative writing. And in fact, he got the first ever 10 out of 10 score by his teacher named Halford uh, for for creative writing. This is the first one he'd ever, first 10 out of 10 score ever given. And this is something that uh, Douglas Adams remembered for the rest of his life, particularly when facing writer's block. He would remind himself of getting a 10 out of 10, which I think is pretty funny. Um, So he really struggled with his early writing to make ends meet. So he took on a series of odd jobs, which included hospital porter, barn builder, bodyguard, and chicken shed cleaner. Um, he would end up moving back home with his mother, um, and become seriously depressed. This was in like 1976. Um, the lack of writing work hit him hard and low confidence became a feature of his life. Um, quote, I have terrible periods of lack of confidence. I briefly did therapy, but after a while I realized it was like a farmer complaining about the weather. You can't fix the weather. You just have to get on with it. Um, he would, he would go on to write, his first radio series, The Hitchhiker's Guide, two years later in 1978. Well, he's writing in 1977. And he did not expect it to be this monstrous success that it was. But let's back up a little bit. I want to talk about how he came up with the name. He told this story on a Letterman interview. Um, and he probably had told it before. I'm not sure. But I, I saw it on a Letterman interview in uh, 1985. He was in I think he was like 17. And he had been hitchhiking around Europe. And he was drunk in Austria laying in a field um apparently he was like so poor that he couldn't afford to like get around so that's why he was hitchhiking and you know this is a time when people hitchhiked a lot um and he had a book called the hitchhiker's guide to europe that he uh i guess he was like laying in the field with and he was like thinking about the book and he was looking up at the stars and he thought to himself someone should make or someone should write a book that's a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and then he like passed out or something (laughs) <laughs> and uh, apparently many years later when he was coming up with this uh, drama, this is what he went back to. He went back to that idea of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that had stuck with him. Um, so, yeah, laying uh, drunk in a field in Austria, apparently. Yeah, that's I where... mean, props. That That's a great concept for a story, though, right? Like, it's yeah. so right away, the title just tells you so much. Yeah, it's cool. So, yeah, he, he started writing this series and... It takes off. Um, it becomes wildly popular. This was all after, by the way, the uh, Monty Python stuff. That all happened before this. So he had had some success, but then mm-hmm. his like style fell out of fashion. Um, and he even said later that like at the time he wanted to be John Cleese. And it took him a while before he learned that that job was taken. <laughs> was like his quote <laughs> that he said, um, which I think is pretty funny. Someone, I, I love Monty Python. So it's cool to hear that he worked with them. And, and it's I mean, like, can you imagine being one of only two people to ever work with Monty Python that wasn't in the cast? Like, that's insane. Yeah. Well, to write for them. But yeah. Right. Um, so his his uh, radio series takes off. He starts writing this book and immediately becomes like massively successful. Money starts pouring in. Um, he had like personal struggles. He had grown up with. um and, you know, his father apparently had multiple wives and he Douglas would also go on to have like many different affairs with different women. He would finally he would eventually settle down. But um, he, he struggled with his romantic life and um, heavy drinking apparently was like a big part of his life. He, he struggled with that at the same time as he struggled with writer's block. He was kind of famous for for really having difficulty finishing projects um but it's interesting because he also would take on tons of work um so like he took on the doctor who stuff at the same time that he was supposed to be writing these novels Mm -hmm. um and then ended up being like apparently a ton of work like they they were basically having him rewrite um entire episodes um based off of like someone would hand him like four pages like a four-page script and he'd have to make it into like you know an hour-long episode of television and so Mm -hmm. he was basically writing the episodes at that point based off of next to nothing um and he was doing all of this while he was on deadline he famously was quoted as saying i love deadlines i love the whooshing noise they make as they go by which i remember reading that in like a writing book like i don't know 20 years ago or something 
Well, yeah, it had to have been. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I've always, I've like that, that quote's always stuck with me. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he, apparently he would have sessions where like his editor would like set him up in a hotel and he'd be in there for weeks at a time. And the editor would just be like hounding him about <laughs> finishing, finishing the books in time. Um, I don't know. Some, some pretty funny stories. It seems like he struggled with deadlines, but then he would always procrastinate, procrastinate, procrastinate. And then he'd do like a flurry of stuff at the very end. Um, I, I even read that he was sometimes finalizing scripts for the Hitchhiker's Guide radio show as people were like recording their lines. Um, he was like finalizing the scripts and stuff. So like he was like always procrastinating, finishing stuff. Um mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think it's pretty funny. As someone who also struggles with procrastination myself, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel that. Um, he called himself a radical atheist. And I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, when, when asked why radical, he said it was for emphasis. So he would not be he would not be asked if he meant agnostic. He <laughs> liked to imagine a sentient puddle who wakes up one morning and thinks, quote, this is an interesting world I find myself in. An interesting hole I find myself in. Fits me rather neatly, doesn't it? In fact, it fits me staggeringly well. Must have been made to have me in it. Um, and that was kind of his 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 sort of idea about like religion and people, you know, yeah. assuming that there's a god and that there's meaning. Um, and I think this like this like question about what what life means and what the universe means and what the world means, like that's all throughout this novel. Um, and it all comes back to the absurdity of it all, right? Like, this is something that philosophers have talked about, you know, endlessly, um, just how absurd life is. And he takes that absurdity, and I feel like there's, like, you can either go to, like, cosmic horror, or you can go to pure, like, satire (laughs) of humor. And it's kind of like the same thing, but it's like, do you, do you, are you horrified by it or are you just amused? Um, And he, he takes it into the amusement uh, realm. I mean, and and it is touched on throughout the, throughout the novel. We get the, uh, not to give too many spoilers, but like we get the petunias, their, their outlook on life. We get the whale, uh, the sperm whale. We get many different people talking yeah. about that's the philosophers that we learn about with the the deep truth and everything. So yeah, deep thought. The the computer. The, these yeah. supercomputers are are awesome. Like they're they're very interesting characters. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's all dealing with the absurdity of existence, and uh, I feel like Douglas Adams, you know, laughs in the in the face of all of that. And I think that that's how I have to be as well. Like just personally, I don't know about you, but like yeah. I, I I can't help but think about like it. It just it's either like you said, you either laugh at it or you curl into a ball, and and like there's two two ways of going about it. And for myself personally, it's just like it's just unknowable. We're so we're so small specks of dust in this universe that like it's just insanity, and like you can't can't comprehend it. And for me, it's like I have to just laugh at it and just think like none of this means anything at the end of the day. Yeah, and and uh, I think laughing at the delusions of grandeur is like a big part of the book too, right? Like all these, pe- all these people who think they're so important, uh, all these life forms who think they're so important and they're, they're cosmically just not. Um, and I don't know, the whole thing's hilarious when you look at it that way. Um, so one other thing that I, I just wanted to touch on is that later in life, um, and by say later in life, like in the eighties, um, he became a huge environmental activist and, um, campaigning down the half behalf of endangered species uh, apparently he, he once participated in a climb of mount kilimanjaro where while wearing a rhino suit for a british charity organization save the rhino international yeah i mean apparently that became a big part of his life was like environmental uh conservation which that's awesome uh, I, th- I think that's really cool yeah yeah it's very cool so in 2001 abruptly while working out uh, at a gym in California, he abruptly died of a massive heart attack from an un- undiagnosed coronary artery disease. Came as a complete shock to people. His fans were heartbroken. He's 49 years old, um, incredibly young. And it became this like rallying thing where, where two weeks after his death, his fans organized a tribute known as Towel Day. And every year... They still sell. They still celebrate Towel Day on May 25th, which if we were smart, we'd do May 25th as our like release or something. But we didn't do that. <laughs> but um, wow, I mean that's that's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Um, and he 
I don't know. Like, I mean, there's so many things I left out. It's like, I, I, I learned so many things. Like he was friends with Pink Floyd. Uh, Richard Dawkins was like a, a friend of his. Stephen Fry, uh, also a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he would have these parties apparently that were legendary where like members of Pink Floyd would be there and like all these people, you know, all these celebrities, John Cleese, you know, like people from Monty Python. Like, uh, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's like this super well-known. Oh, he was really into Apple computers. Um, he was like one of the really early adapters. I think I read that he was like the first person in England to own a Macintosh. Wow. Um, he was a futurist and he would talk about like the, um, he was giving like talks and writing essays and, um, going to Silicon Valley and, and, and all this stuff, um, talking about the rise of the internet and what it was going to mean for the world. And so Mm -hmm. he was like super ahead of his time. He predicted a lot of things that would come to pass with the internet. Um, I, it just a really interesting man who, you know, had this like crazy rise to success, struggled with writer's block and with depression, um, but still has this legacy, you know, that, that is, you know, clearly outlived him and will continue yeah. to do so, I think. I, I wonder, and I know this is just me because I like Good Omen so much, I wonder if he had a, a connection to like uh, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett and like, I feel like they would run in similar circles being like this this, this style of writer yeah. um, in, in the UK. I think he's hugely influential, you know, and like, I, I don't know these to be true, but I, I, um, there were several things I was thinking of while reading the book. Um, I've been doing a Marvel like MCU rewatch mm-hmm. and we just watched, um, cause we've been doing it chronologically. We just watched guardians of the galaxy one and two. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I felt like I could see the DNA, um, uh, you know, of this book in that movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, like like the absurdity of it, like having fun. It's, you know, it's galaxy spanning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially in like the second movie, it gets into some really like mind bending stuff that like you, you really can't even wrap your head around. Like the different like colorful, bizarre, you know, uh, alien creatures that they encounter, like all of this stuff. I'm like, I don't know. Like I'm he he didn't invent all this stuff, but. Like, I feel like yeah. it's just out there. I mean, the... he and Jack Kirby, a lot of people look to Jack Kirby as like the colors and the and the, the tone of those stories and stuff like that. But yeah, like the, the, the you could see James Gunn directing the movies having been influenced by the comedic nature yeah. of of uh, something like this. And well, and that's true because you're saying the comics. Yeah, because I don't know when the comics came out. I guess I don't know 60s. how. Yeah. In the 60s? 60s. Okay. Yeah, 70s. Yeah, so maybe around the same time. I don't know. Um, but all of this... Uh, I think it influences the director when he makes it anyway. Right, um, yeah. But the other one I was thinking of was Futurama, which I am a massive Futurama yeah, fan. I and I, Futurama. I, I feel like so much of the like tone um, and, and the style of humor, while not the same, I, I, I just see a lot of similarities. And, and you know, of, of course, like Rick and Morty and like there's there's yeah. all these like funny sci-fi t- titles out there that I feel like all owe something to Douglas Adams. Yeah, I was definitely thinking of Rick and Morty as well. And and uh, and Futurama is a great example, too, of like, I, I remember hearing that like a lot of the writers on Futurama had like held PhDs in like scientific fields yeah. and stuff. And like that, that th- like the way that someone like that can create stories that then subvert those those specific scientific things to create like interesting sci-fi that's also comedic. And like, yeah, Rick and Morty is another good example of just like, galaxy hopping like crazy antics you could never predict where it's going to go in some episodes like definitely the same kind of thing so one one little story that i thought was interesting a poem was found uh in a cupboard in the school that he attended uh in 2014 and apparently it was called quote a dissertation on the task of writing a poem on a candle and an account of some of the difficulties thereto pertaining uh, he would have written this poem at the age of 17, which I just think is fun. Someone found it in a cupboard. Uh, Insane. He went to. That's, that's awesome. 2014. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, just, I don't know. Like, I I really loved the book. I had a great time with it. Um, I do think there's like a few things here or there that like where the comedy doesn't quite hold up or it, it um, feels like punching down a little bit or, you know, there, there's a couple, there's some of that. Yeah, um, I'm not going to try sure. and pretend like there's none of that. There is. I mean, it was written in the 70s, and and it does feel that way in some in some ways. Um, but m- m- like that, I felt like it was very minor. Obviously, I'm a white guy 
So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Like, it's not going to affect me as much as it might other people. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for my money, it really held up, was a lot of fun, and is something I would definitely recommend to, to anyone, honestly, especially if you're a sci-fi fan, to check this out. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. So I'm sure I have more stories about him that I, because I watched like several videos about him. I watched interviews. I read all the stuff. So if it comes up, I'll, I'll bring it up later. But let's move into the actual plot of the book. The novel opens with an introduction describing the human race as a primitive and deeply unhappy species, as well as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which provides info on every planet in the galaxy. Earthman Arthur Dent awakes in his home in West Country, England, to discover that the local planning council is trying to demolish his house and build a bypass, and lies down in front of the bulldozer to stop it. His friend, Ford Prefect, an alien researcher for the guide, from a small planet in the vicinity of Beetlejuice, who has been posing as an out-of-work actor from Guilford for 15 years, convinces the lead bureaucrat, Mr. Prosser, to lie down in front of the bulldozer for Arthur so that he can buy him six pints of beer at the pub. The construction crew begins demolishing the house anyway, but stops when a fleet of alien spacecrafts arrives on Earth undetected by human space agencies. The Vogons, a callous race of civil servants running the fleet, announce that they have come to demolish Earth and make, to make way for a hyperspace expressway. Ford and Arthur hitch a ride from the Dentrasis, who serve as the cooks on the fleet, and are allowed onto a spaceship traveling to Bernard's Star. They are quickly discovered by the Vogons, who torture them by forcing them to listen to their poetry and then toss them out of an airlock. That just reminds me of, like, in the past, um, I think it was specifically on our Lovecraft Country episode, um, one of them, um, I talked about how the cosmic horror was tied to white supremacy in those, in those books. And here... I, I think the cosmic absurdity is directly tied to bureaucracy um, and like the soulless, like heartless bureaucracy. Like everybody is just slotted into their, they're just doing their job, right? The Vogons are just doing their job mm -hmm. much like, you know, this is, this is basically lampshaded with what happens to Arthur, right? Like it's the same thing happens to earth. Um, and the, the galaxy itself seems to be like a giant bureaucracy where it's like, People are just kind of going through the motions, doing their job. They don't really care. Um, they're all just like concerned with their particular lot in life. Like mm -hmm. they talk about like, why would you do this? And it's like, oh, the hours are good. You know, like things like that are the reasons given. Like, um, I don't know. I, I think it's really clever to like tie your cosmic force <laughs> to something. And I think that that, you know, leads to like a, a really, I don't know, powerful, creative uh, font that you can draw yeah. from and it's funny too because it makes it feel like be, it makes it feel inherently human and earth like but then as time goes on we come to learn that like that's because earth is kind of based off of every everything else in the universe seemingly because right. it's a creation it's, it's amazing so. how tight it all feels right like because yeah. at first it feels like yeah how can anything how can this make sense but then it's very earth centric you know in the scheme of things we find out later um, so what what are your, what is your take on our our two mains our two main characters we're introduced to here, uh, Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect. Um, so Arthur just strikes me as like of course like sort of the everyman, but he's kind of a curmudgeon a little bit. He's got enough of him. We we first meet him as his house is being like bulldozed, which I was like really invested in that story. I was like they can't fucking do this. They're not allowed to do that. You can't just bulldoze <laughs> somebody's house. Yeah. Um, but I did love how it was. It, it was just. It, I don't know. It immediately takes you on that fun journey of being like. At first, you think Ford is kind of all knowing, like uh, because we get the perspective, we kind of understand really quickly that he's like an alien, mm -hmm. and uh, this idea of like come to the pub and have a couple have a couple drinks and, and, uh, you know, hang out. And then, and then, uh, his house is being bulldozed and we see the world ending around him. Um, and just how, how small that is in the grand scheme and how yeah. Ford doesn't care. And even the bartender, I felt a little bad for the bartender. Cause he has that realization, that really, really interesting explanation of how, like, there's a certain charge someone's body will give off almost will like, let you understand like the magnitude of something they're saying. Mm -hmm. And because he was saying it and he's an, also an alien and something about like the distances that he's traveled or something like that. He, the bar barkeep like felt the impact of that. Uh, so much when more. he said that the world was going to end when he said the world was going to end and he yeah. felt it in his bones. Like he's so just like, of... he's just like nice day for it or something. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then the world ends around them, and they and they hitchhike. Yeah. And I, I like I like Ford because we he starts the all knowing character, and then he kind of gets relegated to being just another like you know person within the cog. And but I yeah. do like that he's a writer specifically, like he's kind of writing the guide and mm-hmm. or or at least revising. Yeah, apparently that's what it really took off uh, the story for him, uh, Douglas Adams, as when he decided that that would be the job. Right, like he he had the concept of of someone who came to Earth to write for the guide, mm-hmm. and that's where the the story really took off for him, and he was able to to start plotting it. And I know we don't want to talk too much about the jokes, but the idea of the joke of what's written in the in the guide about Earth being just like mostly harmless, most harmless, <laughs> and then mostly revised to mostly harmless is incredible. Yeah, yeah really funny. Uh, I mean, there's so many so many good bits here, and, and just like you know, one of the things I wrote down in my in my notes is just how like the meta text of the hitchhiker's guide it's so clever right like you have this like unassuming tome that has all this information you call it the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and then you sell a book called the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy the one in the book is described as having the words don't panic written on it you put that on the cover of your book like it's so smart from like a marketing standpoint too like it's it's brilliant um and and there's so many things that just come out of this that that are like i don't know just classic stuff like in the towels described like the reasons you would want a towel like there's so mm-hmm. many great reasons it's like one of the essential things of, to bring when you're hitchhiking and the best part about the towels to me is like all of those essential reasons to bring it but more than anything it's when you run into somebody else if you have of everything you could possibly have if you have a towel that shows like you're a capable person like clearly yeah. like if you had the wherewithal to remember where your towel was through all the adventuring through the galaxy then like you got your shit together. Yeah. And you so know, funny. I bet that was something that was in his Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe. You know, like I bet a towel Probably. was one of the things they recommended you bring with you. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's so funny. Uh, one more thing about about just writers writing in, in the story. Uh <laughs> Someone, I assume that that he was probably someone who enjoyed poetry. You know, that's he's a writer, so I would assume he at least had an appreciation for it. And to have yeah. the moment where um, it said that like these creatures, these these aliens are like the second worst. They have the second worst po- uh, poetry in in the entire universe. Um, and just how Earthling, like our Earthling Arthur, responds to it, and to like our our poetry that we love and means so much to us is like seemingly like primitive in the grand scheme of things within the universe. And I just thought that was really funny as well. And and yeah. a, a funny nod to the fact that I'm sure that he, that uh, Douglas Adams loved poetry. Maybe I don't know. I I think he certainly had a disdain for bad poetry. Um, yes, and, you know, like it's just it's really hilarious that the torture they're subjected to is is the Vogons reading them their bad their bad poetry, uh, which is hilarious. But I mean, a couple other good uh, or great ideas I want to point out was like the Pangalactic Gargle Blaster, the most powerful drink in the universe. Um, the description of what goes into it is so brilliant. Because it's like absurdity and like things you could never find, things from these other distant planets, like olives, you know, like, so it's always like there's like uh, just a plain thing. Like it's all these little layers of jokes that um, work so well, but it's also like I'm sure if you like there are I guarantee you there are parties at conventions that serve a pangalactic gargle blaster. Um, I've probably had one before and not realized what the reference was. You know what I mean? Because like, yeah, sci-fi fantasy conventions love this kind of shit. Yeah. I'd like to have one, so in the future, I'll be <laughs> yeah. looking out for it. Yeah. Um, the writing is just so clever. I wrote down one one particular line that I know is famous, but uh, it, when the Vogons show up, it said that the ships hung in the sky in much the same way as bricks don't. I love uh, that line, too. <laughs> so yeah. It's so clever. Like, just such a twist at the end of what you know you would expect. Um, and there's so much of that in his writing. You know, like It's not the most like lush descriptive writing by any stretch um and in fact you know it go, it moves fast but you know it, it it is so funny and it's so clever it's sharp yeah it's sharp and yeah. it breaks conventions in the way that you like yeah. you're, you're just not expecting it's always shockingly funny all right let's continue the plot summary so meanwhile zaphod Beeblebrox, which by the way i'm gonna have a, i'm gonna have a time with these names we'll see how it goes uh who's ford's cousin and president of the galaxy steals the spaceship Heart of Gold at its unveiling with his human companion, Trillian. 
The Heart of Gold is enabled with, quote, infinite improbability drive that allows it to travel instantaneously to any point in space by simultaneously passing every point in the universe at once. After being tossed into space, Arthur and Ford are rescued by the Heart of Gold as it travels with the infinite improbability drive. Zaphod takes his passengers, Arthur, Ford, a depressed robot named Marvin, and Trillian, to a legendary planet known as Magrathea. Magrathea is said to have been a planet whose inhabitants specialize in custom-building planets for others, but caused themselves to become rich as the rest of the galaxy became poor and disappeared. Although Ford initially doubts that the planet is Magrathea, the planet's computers sends them warning messages to leave before firing two nuclear missiles at the Heart of Gold. Arthur inadvertently saves them by activating the infinite improbability drive and improperly, causing the Heart of Gold to remain in Magrathea and for the missiles to transform into a sperm whale and a bowl of petunias. The whale, which unsuccessfully tries to make sense of its existence, uh, falls to the surface, opens a passage underground on impact. As the ship lands, Trillian's pet mice Frankie and Benji escape. Okay, so a lot happens here. We're introduced to Zaphod, the president of the galaxy, um, and this imp- imp- improbability drive, uh, mm-hmm. you know, spaceship. That's uh, the thing I want to talk about most, yeah. really. Is So we've talked in, in other stories, and I think specifically with um, Lord of the Rings, we talked about Tom Bombadil and the sorting hat in Harry Potter yeah. and the way that like, these like all-knowing beings affect stories. And I think there are a few of them in this story, right? So we have the improbability yeah. drive. We have the computers who seemingly know everything are all-powerful. And then there are some characters. This, and then there's also this all-knowing being that's speaking to us. Uh, yeah, the this, narrator. Uh, yeah, yeah, the narrator. Um, and I was just like to have to juggle so many of those things and then and but then to use it to your advantage to have pure chaos and randomness happen in your book uh no one could ever wag a finger at you and be like that can't happen within your story because you've created these things that are like this is an improbability drive anything could possibly a a whale could appear like could we could we could turn nuclear bombs seemingly into a whale that's falling and then and then create you know for the plot of the story create a tunnel that then you know leads into what we need to get into inside of this planet it's just i I don't know ballsy very ballsy (laughs) yeah you know this deus ex machina uh, is is present throughout you know it's introduced as a character essentially and and it's uh given a name and that's how they're saved right when they're floating in space and they've tried all these different they try like five different things in a row to not get shut out the airlock and all of them fail and i remember just thinking how brilliant it was because like each each one seems like it has so much promise and right. then they just keep failing keep failing they're they're out there and they're 29 seconds into like a 30 second thing where they're gonna die and they get rescued because it's so improbable and because it's so improbable, that's why it happens. And then um, it's it's not even just like random. It's not one occurrence, too. It's like for the rest of the story, it seems to cascade, too. There'll mm-hmm. be like five or six random things happen in a row. And you're, that's just like and it's just like, well, it's the improbability drive, you know? Yeah. But it works yeah. for the story. Like, you know, it fits. It fits the story. And we get introduced to one of my favorite characters here. And that's Marvin, the depressed oh, yeah. robot. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. love him. He's just I, sad about everything. Everything sucks. He, every every other like because there's so many artificial intelligences on this ship like the doors are happy to open and like the the ship's computers super joyful all the time and then you have marvin who's the super intelligent computer who's so intelligent that he's now depressed um and he's just so hilarious i i, I don't know i love everybody gets annoyed by him but i love him in the story you're saying yeah, everybody, oh, yeah. everybody in the story don't, doesn't like him. Yeah, yeah, um, like Arthur and everybody's like, oh, he's this guy again. But yeah, I love him. So funny, so so funny. And you know, this is like seventy nine, you said, or something like that, when this was written. So yeah, to be this far along and in, in thinking about, and you know, there's definitely other stories. I'm sure Philip K. Dick had other stories that we've even talked about, like Do yeah. Androids Dream and stuff like that. But robots and androids. Um, being having conscious AI and then dealing with actual human emotion and and uh, if you are a supercomputer like Marvin and you can comp- and you can compute everything you're you know thousands of times smarter than humans and things like that you have access to the information think about how depressed we are when we start to really understand our, our lot in life and then yeah. <laughs> think of the uh, the robot that can comprehend so much more is it's yeah. hilarious it's so tight it's like the smarter you are the more depressed you'll be i guess is kind of the message there which is yeah. kind of funny <laughs> darkly funny <laughs> it can happen yeah. too right it's like ignorance is bliss is a, is a saying that yeah well yeah. he's like arthur's trying to 
talk to him about the the sunset and how it's like the most incredible he's ever th- incredible thing he's ever seen and marvin's like rubbish like I don't know, it's just so funny like yeah i've seen yeah. it all before you know like yeah he, he says something about like other oceans on earth and he says yes and he's like i hate oceans like yeah. he just like hates everything yep so good so a couple of you know interesting things happen here magrathea which i think is a really cool concept right like it's this this custom planet that builds custom planets, this, this like group of people who were super rich and, and like build custom planets for people. And it's, it, 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 um, I realized like now, cause I've like learned about this concept more. Like I, I could feel like we're getting in on simulation territory here, right? Yeah. Like we're getting in on like creating universes, creating life, creating things that if you start going down that line, it's like, well, you know, does that mean that this, this was created? And I think even later on, Arthur says something about like, how do you know there's not something else even going on? And they just kind of hand wave it away and are like, don't worry about it. You know, I, that could be true, but uh, you know, we can't worry about it. Um, which is basically like how you have to be right. Like we could just be an invention of, you know, the mice who live on our planet who created this as a, as a that are five dimensional simulation beings and to, it's all to figure know. out the meaning of life. And yeah, it could be that. And you would never know. That's what's like, ironic about it and and it wouldn't change anything for you really because you could never confirm it and really Um, it's like does it matter in the end right and that's i think ultimately this the the moral right here is like does it matter is it going to change how you because it's all about perception like how you're viewing the world you know you if that if that terrifies you or it you know or if it's laughable to you that we're so small within this world is it really going to change your day to day how you feel about the people you know and how you you're going to strive for your goals still and some of that stuff like it, it's very interesting to think about it in that those terms yeah all right i'm going to read a little more summary so on magrathia zaphod ford and trillian venture down to the planet's interior while leaving arthur and marvin outside arthur is met by a man named slarty bartfast who explains that the Magrathians have been in stasis for tens of thousands of years to wait out an economic recession. The Magrathians temporarily reawakened to construct a second version of Earth commissioned by mice, who were in fact the most intelligent species on Earth. In the factory workshop, Slarty Bartfast shows Arthur that in the distant past, a race of hyperintelligent, pan-dimensional beings created a supercomputer named Deep Thought to determine the answer to the ultimate question to life, the universe, and everything. Two philosophers representing a trade association arrived and complained to the computer that the computer would remove uncertainty and end their jobs and demanded deactivation. However, Deep Thought revealed that it would take 7.5 million years to complete calculations and reasoned that during that time they could argue over what the computer's answer will be. 7.5 million years later, the philosopher's descendants asked Deep Thought for the answer, which it announces is the number 42. Deep Thought tells its creators that the answer makes no sense to them because they didn't know what the ultimate question had been in the first place. So he suggested designing an even greater computer to determine what the ultimate question was. This computer is actually the planet Earth, which was constructed by by the Magrathians and was five minutes away from finishing its task and figuring out the ultimate question when the Vogons destroyed it. The hyperintelligent super beings participated in the program as mice, performing experiments on humans while pretending to be experimented on. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, did you follow all that? <laughs> I mean, if you've read the book, you you know, you get it. It's like uh it's wild. It's a, it's like a mind-fucking moment, right? Like incredible stuff. Yeah. Um I love this computer too, Deep Thought. It has a lot of personality to it. I love how um my one of my favorite bits was uh when they were like when he's when the computer says that it's the second most intelligent computer mm-hmm. and they're like, what the hell? Like, you know, we designed you to be the most intelligent computer. And, and then they start like asking it about other supercomputers and it's disdain, utter disdain it has for all these other supercomputers that are being described. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on for a while and it's hilarious mm-hmm. um, before finally, of course, the, 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 the computer that's going to far surpass it is going to be one that Deep Thought designs itself. Right. At some future date. Really good. I also love the philosophers coming up and and being like, our jobs will be gone. Yeah, they're mad about their jobs, right? It fits right back to that bureaucracy. And then then the amount of time, like, you know, bureaucracy famously moves very slowly and like, okay, well, it's going to take millions of years before I can get you the answer. And like whole civilizations have to be formed around this. And and I, I just kept thinking about how like, 
you know, along the way of society, I, I don't know, I just had this mental image of like a computer still computing and as as society reverts to like any sort of like ice age or like cave people back up through and down and they're seeing it as magic versus seeing it as science. And yeah. I just imagined what those millions of years like had within them. You know, and the number 42 being the answer is such an awesome joke, yet it is it is like the definition of an inside joke. Mm-hmm. Because if you haven't read this book, it's not very funny. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I think the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's am- amusing. You know, when someone when someone like explained this to me, who, of course, ruining the book and <laughs> not ruining it, but like spoiling a major part of the book. Yeah. Um, because I hadn't read it at the time. They're like, oh, yeah, there's a supercomputer and it says that that's the answer. And I'm like, OK, that's kind of funny. But like you, you really need to because it's set up so brilliantly. It's like it, it's it's built up, you know, it, it, it's it's it draws it out in suspense. And then it finally drops this 42 answer. And you're just like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> so good. And it's like, no, you, just yeah. have, you don't know the, what the question was. I couldn't stop thinking about how 42 was uh, Jackie Robinson's number, the first black athlete to play in Major League Baseball. And I was like, yeah. you know, I, I just want, I have to know, like, why the significance of 42 for Douglas Adams specifically, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I bet someone had to have asked him that at some point, but I didn't encounter it in my research. He probably wouldn't have said, though. Yeah, maybe yeah. not. I did think that um, I think we're coming up on the 42nd anniversary of wow. this book. Right. If it came out in 79, that would be later this year in September of this year. So I think we're sandwiched between like the 42nd anniversary of the radio show and the 42nd anniversary of the book. So wow. um, once again, we didn't time it to come out like to commemorate that or anything, but it's kind of cool to think about. Really cool. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to read the, the final plot here. Slarty Bartfast takes Arthur to see his friends who are at a feast hosted by Trillian's pet mice. They reject the idea of building a new Earth to start the process over and offer to buy Arthur's brain in case it contains the question, leading to a fight when he declines. Zaphod saves Arthur from having his brain removed as police from the planet Blagulon Kappa arrive to arrest Zaphod. The mice, hoping to start a lucrative career on chat shows and the lecture circuit in their home dimension, decide to pretend that the ultimate question was, quote, how many roads must a man walk down? After the police repeatedly shoot at Zaphod, they suddenly die when their life support systems short-circuit. Suspicious, Ford discovers on the surface that Marvin became bored and explained his view of the universe to the police officer's spaceship, causing it to commit suicide. The five leave Magrathea and decide to go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And that's the end of the book. Uh, So yeah, Marvin forces an ai to commit suicide <laughs> talking to it yeah it's hilarious the uh the cop stuff was pretty fucking uh real huh like i was like it was very very funny to me yeah uh but sadly fucking this was written in 79 and sadly still holds pretty true and yeah, it's almost the, like the, police brutality has been a problem for a real long time yeah interesting right yeah um but yeah, there's all their musings about like why they're good cops too. I was like, oh man, this is like why? Like I'm a liberal-minded cop, and this, that, da da da. And you know, we don't yeah. feel good. I don't feel good about doing this stuff. I go home at the end of the night and I cry to my my girlfriend or whatever the quote was. Something yeah. like that. One of them was like writing novels, but they haven't been published yet. <laughs> so and they're so, so they're angry. Yeah. Susan's <laughs> so like, so you better watch out. Yeah. Uh, which is like funny uh, writer joke. <laughs> Morbid too, a little bit. Obviously. Um, yeah, man. Uh, we also didn't even talk about the uh, the dolphins, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, so long and thanks for all the fish. It's their famous quote they give as they leave right before the earth gets destroyed. Um, I love the idea that they're like actually more intelligent than all of humanity. And yep. um, uh, yeah, I mean, humans look down on them because all they do is like f- fuck around in the ocean all day. And that's like the reason that they look at humanity as less intelligent because they don't do that. Um so good yeah i love there's a moment with same thing so they're like the second most intelligent beings on on the earth and the first being the the mice when arthur was going through the lists of all of the things that they would do to mice to uh slarty Bartfast, he yeah. was saying like you know we would do this and that and all this stuff and and and, and somehow you know eventually we would learn things about ourselves and then and then he was like oh yeah you learned things about yourselves and was basically <laughs> like they were they were training you this whole time they were they were testing you instead so funny the idea they're pan-dimensional like super intelligent beings who you know would like allow themselves to die quote unquote because they're not really dying and mm-hmm. like that's the thing man like you start thinking about it that it's like 
could that be true? Yes, it could be. Like, how would we ever know? Um, you know, that's that's one of the like, uh, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracies about aliens is like they're here. They're just like so good at hiding that we don't know it. You know, yeah, that kind of stuff. And and of course, like, how could you ever know um, if if they're especially if they're like an extra dimensional, like you know, if they, if they exist on a realm beyond our comprehension yeah. or beyond, you know, literally beyond our our vision as well. Like we yeah. know certain frequencies we can see within and stuff. And like, oh I'm, man, that reminds me of like one of my favorite just like it's a small character but it's it's uh the shade of blue it's like yep. a, a an intelligent shade of blue that has been like bodied in a prism of some kind mm-hmm. <laughs> um like that's what i was talking about like all the like bizarre beings that are just like rattled off so many just like funny like clever brilliant throwaways in here um it's just packed full of it for such a small book just good stuff man it's like it's you know the Stephen Fry audiobook version, I think it's like five and a half hours long or something. So like, you know, check it out if you haven't already. Even if you have read this book, you know, maybe check out the audiobook again because you can listen yeah. to it in an afternoon. <laughs> and I, I think so. I'm definitely going to continue on. Yeah, this is a, this is a beach re- like nice, nice something. You just sit down on an afternoon and take it. But it's got such it. big concepts. Like I wouldn't yeah. even call it a beach read because like. It's not not in the traditional sense, not in the. But yeah. it's easy. I, I see what you're it's saying. It's, like, it's easy like, to read. In, it's in a nice a Sunday Sunday afternoon read to kind yeah. of just get through, and you can put it down and think about it, obviously as well. But uh, so at the end, they go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. Is that? I feel like with all the titles, I think that's like the title of the next book. Or that's something. what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I don't know much about, but you know, I'm curious. What a fucking task, you know. I, I know that uh, the screenplay. Uh, it sounds like. Um, Douglas Adams wrote it early on and he was shopping it around and modifying it, revising it, trying to get this made into a film. And unfortunately it was made, you know, after he died. Mm-hmm. Um, but adapting this into a film just seems like a monumental task. Like it's, yeah. there's so many like mind bending, you know, concept just defying. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but maybe that's appropriate. Um, there's just so many things that it, it's beyond, film that i'm like how do you put this into a film and so um i'm gonna be curious to see like how how things were adapted um when we watch this thing i think i have seen it but i just yeah like i don't remember it so i'm excited to watch it again yeah i've definitely seen it it's been it's been a while now but i mean i remember there definitely being an incredible cast and i think they lean into yeah. that heavily i know martin um, freeman's in it and a few others do you yeah, yeah i don't want to say anything in case yeah, you don't we'll, we'll get into that next yeah. week but uh, yeah, what are you, what are your takeaways? I mean, I, like I said, I think I think one of the major things I take away is this is for my sensibilities. This is one of my favorite books that we've covered in the podcast, just because it's so. It really doesn't overstay its welcome. It left me wanting more, but even more than that, like the way that it tackles like heady concepts and the way that it's unflinchingly satirical and like willing to go to crazy places and break conventions in ways that most people wouldn't want to. You know, you wouldn't want to even try to navigate those waters it would just be it just seems like such a tall task and then you know that brings us into the adaptation like i it just seems like a tall task to adapt as well but overall i mean like i said i I, it's one of my i'm definitely putting it on a list of of books that would describe to a stranger my personality so there's that yeah i love that it it, uh within its pages contains it kind of contains the meaning of life right like in an absurd way like it, it the the whole story explains earth and its purpose um as this supercomputer that is designed to determine the meaning of life and like an, as a metaphor for existence that's kind of profound like there's so many layers to this right like i don't know i, I love that like you know, what if the meaning is to question the meaning? Like, what if that's the meaning? You like, know? like the reason for living is living. Like, this is you know to yeah. to experience and to question what the reason is. Like, right. to, or to try and find out. Like, to forever pursue that question. What yeah. if that's the reason? I also felt like the philosophers when they showed up, I thought that was going to be their reasoning. I thought they were going to be like, we don't want to know the meaning if we know if we knew the actual like finite answer yeah. then then that would you know get rid of everything we could possibly ever. yeah and they, they i kind of thought that, that too way. but but no it's like I, i'll lose my job and i won't be able to have any money and then it's funny that i think they threaten to go on strike which just the the idea of like a bunch of philosophers going on strike is hilarious yeah. to me it's very funny <laughs> uh yeah uh i i think uh i think that's gonna be about it for the book man this was a lot of fun um like i said we will be back next week for 
the movie. If you enjoyed this coverage, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. Uh, we haven't got any on Apple uh, podcasts in a little while, so I'd love to see some new ones on there. Helps us uh, get more eyes on us, get more ears on us. There we go. That's more accurate. <laughs> Speaking of eyes on us, uh, if you wanted to help support the podcast, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we did just do that video content there exclusively. So yeah. if you wanted to check that out and support see the podcast, faces. see our faces. <laughs> and we, like we said before, we did this sort of tiered, we decided what, where our projects from the first two seasons fit on a tier list of S to F, S, A, B, C, D, F. There you go. That's all of them. Yeah, it was fun. It was it was a challenge. Uh, I know we were agonizing. I think at one point you were like, it's crazy that we're, you know, that sentence just came out of your mouth. So <laughs> comparing comparing two different projects with what yeah. goes above what was. was yeah, tough. good times. Um, if you'd like to connect with us on social media, we are at Ink to Film on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and we have a Council of Inklings on there as well as a Facebook group. All right. So long. And thanks for all the fish. Until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>